Mentally Unscripted, Episode 44, Just Get the Shot Already, The Supreme Court and Vaccine Mandates with Patrick McFarlane. Hey, everybody out there. This is Scott. Thanks for tuning in to Mentally Unscripted. We've got Paul here. Paul, how's it going? Going great on this beautiful day. How are you? I'm doing great. And I... Normally, we banter a little bit, but tonight I'm going to skip all that because I want to get to our guest. I'm pretty excited about this guest. It is Patrick McFarlane, and Patrick is a licensed Wisconsin attorney and a regular contributor at the Libertarian Institute. And if you don't know what the Libertarian Institute is, go check that out. I I believe it's libertarianinstitute.org, but I'm sure Patrick will correct me if I'm wrong there. Patrick's work has also appeared at antiwar.com. And he's the host of the Liberty Weekly podcast, which you can find at libertyweekly.net, where he covers libertarian legal theory, Austrian economics, history, and other libertarian topics. And I definitely recommend going out and giving that podcast a listen. He talks about a lot of just very important issues, and it's not a lot of the bickering and whining that you hear on a lot of other libertarian podcasts about left libertarians versus right libertarians or post-libertarianism or whatever that garbage is that people are whining about now. Uh, On Liberty Weekly, he talks about some very poignant concepts, things that are very important. So Patrick, welcome and thanks for joining us. Hey, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. The reason why we asked you on is that you've covered some pretty important topics recently on Liberty Weekly, specifically the vaccine mandates. And you're leading a bit of a charge in your community uh, opposing the mandates. So uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on with that. Yeah. So what I, I got really mad after Joe Biden gave his speech. And what he did essentially was blow a bunch of hot air and directed orally directed OSHA to come up with these guidelines. And what he said is emphatically, it's not a law. He directed an unelected administrative agency to promulgate regulation um, as it as it stands with the 100 employee mandate. So I got really upset about that. I wanted to do something. I've been active in the libertarian space for five or so years now, and I've always had my show. but. I never took that activism in person. I really just use my show as an outlet to speak to like-minded individuals online and to, I just enjoy making content. I enjoy kind of intellectual pursuits and doing that kind of thing. So what, what I decided to do is that I recently moved to a very red county. It was actually the county that I grew up in and people here are pretty like-minded. I mean, they're, they're conservatives. There's a lot of Trump supporters here, but a lot of them are also fed up with the mandates. And I think that on this issue, which I do believe is the most important issue of our lifetimes, that we need to find allies wherever we can find them. And if we could, in the process, steer them in a better, more liberty-friendly direction, why not do that? So I knew somebody who had a supper club over here. I reached out to him. I knew he felt the same way. And I asked if he'd be willing to host an event. And so I hosted an event And it was an overwhelming success. There were 300 plus people there, including the sheriff in our town. And um, everyone, I gave a little speech and I think everyone liked it a lot, or at least that's what they told me. And so it kind of steeled people. We, we, there were a lot more people showing up to the school board meetings. And I think there will be a lot of people running for county board. At this point, when we're recording this, OSHA still hasn't promulgated their regulations yet. But we keep hearing that they're coming at some point. Everybody's sitting on the edge of their seat waiting to see what those contain and what, exactly how this is all going to work. But a lot of local communities and states, I know here in Colorado, uh, our state board of health has issued a vaccine mandate. So what's the situation in your community? So um, your state board of health, have they issued a vaccine mandate to private businesses or to? Uh, it's just uh, government employees at this point and, uh, and any... A uh, healthcare facility that is covered by a particular regulation, and um, I, I forget exactly what the ins and outs of it are, but it's most govern or most healthcare employees in the state, I believe, are covered by it. So, to my knowledge, they have not mandated that state employees take the vaccine. However, a lot of larger companies and most healthcare providers are mandating that their employees take the vaccine. Yeah, I was I was going to add to that. I have a friend. Um in the state of Washington who, who works uh, for a firm that does uh, public contracts. And as a contractor, the, uh, the mandates uh, at, that, at that level have, have transferred over to him. So you're, you're, you're seeing it 
move out. And obviously, obviously, I mean, I think if if you're going to argue, well, there's a rationale for the mandate. It's it's not. Um, it would seem like it would extend um, if you agreed with that to to the contractor system. Um, so I'm not sure that's you know beyond the pale, if you will, or, or beyond expectation. Yeah, and uh, to my knowledge, too, it's affecting. Oh, like you said, yeah, like construction construction workers who have, I think, stayed in federal contracts and uh, like the the road, you know, the people who build the roads. <laughs> Touchy libertarian topic, I know, but uh, I, I just know that Mathy Construction is one of the biggest. Um, they do most of the road construction in Wisconsin, and and they're getting mandated. Yeah, I was uh, just listening to the propaganda report today, and they said that uh, some some trucking companies are considering walking away from their federal contracts because they don't want to mandate their employees to uh, get the vaccine. I'm not sure if a mandate has been handed down for federal employees and federal contractors yet, or if it's coming, but I know everyone's at least expecting it if it hasn't been handed down yet. Here's the thing, right? So we're sitting here talking about how terrible it is that the government is telling us that we have to get this vaccine. But, you know, all the all these really smart people on cable news, they keep telling me that the government's allowed to do this, that it's all in the public interest. They just were trying to protect our health and that this was all settled back in 1905 in a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. So what do you have to say about that? Yeah, that's absolutely not true. That's not the case. And the the Jacobson cases is, is um it's different. It's distinguishable for a lot of reasons. And one of the main reasons is that this was kind of in a, a federalism opinion by the U.S. Supreme Court saying that basically it is within the power of the state government to mandate vaccination only by saying, hey, if you don't get vaccinated, we're going to give you a nominal fine of $5. And, and uh, held within the actual uh, Massachusetts uh, Supreme Court opinion they said, quote, if a person should deem it important, the vaccination should not be performed in his case and the authorities should think otherwise, it is not in their power to vaccinate him by force. And the worst that could happen to him under the statute would be the payment of the penalty of $5. So now we are talking about $5 back before the Federal Reserve came along. So I, I don't know, maybe you could buy a, a, an entire office building for $5 back then. I'm not real sure. They say that adjusted for inflation, $5 was like $150. Was it? Okay. So not too much money, but still not chump change either. And of course, we certainly don't have that case today with the vaccine mandates. We aren't being given the option of paying a $150 fine and going on about our business. Yeah. I, I just want to jump in here and ask the question. So here we're talking about a case, talking about whether or not they have the authority. You know, I, I question comes to my mind, is there is there a reasonable premise on which to to create a mandate. So, you know, when when you're thinking about sort of more of a health policy perspective as a lawyer, do you see uh cases and and I guess not it wouldn't just be case law, but but do you see cases where a mandate of this kind is is considered kind of widely accepted uh within the legal community as something that's that's kind of acceptable to do? Is there is there any previous cases like that? Um, you know, not that I know of in particular. Um I, I'm not I'm not a like a, a really gigantic deep dive student of cases of, of compulsory vaccination. Um, but I, from my opinion, just based off reading Jacobson, I, 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 I mean, if Massachusetts said that you can't forcibly vaccinate someone, I guess it would depend on what other courts have said in the past. Um, but I, I would think that the state bar system is very much captured by progressives and just knowing off of witnessing what's been happening in the legal community is that a lot of attorneys are very afraid to take any cases that challenge the COVID regime uh, for fear of losing their reputation. And it wouldn't surprise me if at some point in time, the state bar actually pulled the licenses of those attorneys who wouldn't get vaccinated. Uh, that would not surprise me. So I, I think it's my opinion that most of the legal community kind of knows that it's not constitutional to mandate vaccination by force. So they're trying every means they can to get people vaccinated without actually doing it forcibly. And I don't think they'll have to do it forcibly, to be honest. I think they could completely carve the unvaccinated out from society. That was one of the fears here in Colorado is that anyone who had a professional license from the state would end up losing their licenses if they refused to get vaccinated. So uh, you know, anyone in the financial services industry, uh, potentially employer uh, attorneys. Um, so it's not just healthcare workers. That 
has not come to pass, but I know that it's been been the fear for quite a while. And another thing that I think is important is just some quick background background on Jacobson is that case that was 1905, so it was dealing with smallpox. And at the time, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but I think smallpox had a fatality rate of like 35 percent. Whereas with COVID, we're looking at a fatality rate of less than 1%, and there's alternative treatments available for COVID uh, that did not exist for smallpox. So just the uh, the situation surrounding the virus was just much different. So I think there's definitely a, a lot of reasons why we could distinguish that Jacobson case from the current environment with COVID. Well, I, I think another important distinguishing factor is that at the time, smallpox was not a novel virus. Um, that's my understanding. It is a virus, but it was something that had been around and, and maybe the strains were different. I'm not an immunologist or uh, an epidemiologist, but the treatment that they are mandating, specifically the COVID vaccines are an experimental form of treatment. Um, this is a type of vaccine that has not been employed usually. And this is my understanding. It is the injection of a dead virus which is the traditional vaccine. And uh, this is an mRNA vaccine that actually, in my understanding, is that it makes your body produce the spike protein, which is what is on the COVID-19 virus. And so it's actually using your own body to produce something that elicits an autoimmune response or an, an immune response, rather. Right. That was my understanding as well. Paul, I think you're a little more up on the virus or on the vaccines. Does that sound right to you? <laughs> yeah. With with the news that changes weekly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I think um, my understanding is, is consistent that um, all of the the all of the versions of the vaccines that we've seen to date are I, I like to think of it as, as they're 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 addressing the actual delivery mechanism, which is the the spike, rather than the the virus itself. Uh, although I think that there's a lot of discussion about how harmful the spike in and of itself can be uh, when COVID enters the body, without the actual um, you know, let alone the, the virus itself, which can attack uh, your organs, and that the the vaccines are uh, using a novel technique, mRNA treatment, to uh, produce the the spike protein to, as you said, create the um, the immune response to the spike rather than the the virus itself. So it's actually neutralizing or attempting to neutralize the package. Um, I I think what's what what's what really sticks out to me here is it is the fact that um, it is a novel technique that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they've been working on for roughly a decade trying to see how they can use it to address certain types of illnesses uh, with little effect. And um, so now we have we have COVID that comes out and they're all able to develop and, and to attack it, which on one hand, I, I think of it as, you know, just philosophically, there's something beautifully amazing if we can address something rapidly. Uh, it does beg the question: Why do we need to be studying gain of function if <laughs> we're not? If we didn't use any of that information to develop this, all they needed is a sequence, which means means they wouldn't need any of the the information from studying it. Put that aside for a moment. Um, but then on the flip side, it's also knowing that when we're using these treatments, that they are uh, they don't have d- a decade long safety safety um, history. Also, as you said, there's the distinction that that COVID is novel, right? It's a novel novel virus. Um, you don't have to go into the, the land of where did it even originate to to go there and know that it's it, we don't have the same history as you said with polio uh, with with human interaction with it. So you've got two variables which are which are quite unique that distinguish what we're dealing with today. Um, you know, a, a virus that's that's new, even though coronavirus has been around a long time. This this version that we're seeing is is very different. And then we have a treatment which is entirely novel. I think both of those beg the question, you know, how much does case law that's that's previous, how much does it apply today, right? Yeah, and I, I think uh, those are important points to kind of get at is I think there there is the consensus in the community, the medical community right now, I believe it's artificial, but there is a consensus that vaccination is the only way to treat COVID-19. And it seems like at the time too, why is vaccination the only way to treat smallpox? And and maybe at the time it's different because, you know, hygiene levels are not the way it is. Modern medicine isn't the way it is, but we've discovered the science of immunology. So the only response is to inoculate people. Um, I'm not sure, but you, you, um, Paul, you hinted at a question earlier talking about would 
I think your question was this, is that would I see a situation in, in which vaccination should be mandatory? Was that your question? Yeah. Whether, yeah. So maybe it was asking if, the, if there was a case, uh, but yeah, just in general, are there, and maybe, maybe it's more of a thought of experiment. Are there instances in which we could suggest and say, listen, this, under this scenario, we think there would be in, intense consensus, you know, almost, almost 99% consensus. I, being a voluntarist myself, I think you know my answer. Yeah, I um, think I do. But I don't think that there would be a situation. I mean, theoretically, if you had a disease that killed 99% of people and there was a vaccine and the vaccine was the only way to prevent death, I don't think you would have to force people to take the vaccine. Um, and, and I think you can play around with the sliders of probability all you want. Uh, but if things get dire enough, I don't think that you would have to coerce people into a certain treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Um, and for the folks, uh, Patrick used the term voluntarist there. So if you're not sure what that is, go back to episode 40 where Paul and I did a, we had Patrick, or uh, not Patrick, Jamie Kane on from Liberty Uninterrupted who talked uh, about voluntarism. So we're not going to go through all that again. Yeah. So those are all really great points. I mean, we have this thing called a constitution and, you know, this other thing that we call the Bill of Rights. And we, as Americans, we hang our hat on that. I mean, this is what differentiates us from the rest of the world, makes us better than everyone else. So isn't there anything in the Bill of Rights or the Constitution that would say, hey, government, stop trying to stick needles in my arm? Yeah, I believe there is. And, and this kind of goes back to the entire theory that underpins the Constitution. And uh, succinctly, it's this theory of popular sovereignty that was developed during the American, during the Enlightenment period, but mostly during the American Revolution in the lead up to the war of secession against the British Empire. And it was that there was this uh, theory of parliamentary sovereignty that existed in England before the American Revolution. And that was basically the idea that, you know, when, Paul, when Parliament sits with the king, the monarch, that's where the sovereignty in the country lies. And the sovereignty is the ultimate political power that exists in a given society. So in Great Britain, the, this theory of sovereignty was that, well, Parliament is sovereign, um, and that developed from when Parliament was only sovereign when the king sat with it. So the American revolutionaries are trying to think of some kind of legal, um, you know, hand, foothold by which they can argue that they should be separate from the king. And so they developed this idea of popular sovereignty that is that the people are the ultimate source of political power in the country. And why is that important? Well, that's important because when the Constitution is ratified, it is, it is placed upon this foundation of popular sovereignty, the idea being that the federal government only has the power that we expressly delegate to it. And there was a huge argument during the... Um, when, when the Constitution was written, there was this argument about, okay, well, should we or should we not include a Bill of Rights, which would be fundamentally listing the rights that the people definitely have. And the Anti-Federalists, which were more libertarian types, were arguing, well, why would we need it? Because if the federal government only has the powers we expressly give it, wouldn't listing our rights kind of infer that if a right isn't listed, the federal government has that power? And I so ultimately there was a compromise that was made to create the Bill of Rights to sell the states on this idea of the new constitution. And so there's this conception, I think, a misconception that people have that, oh, if it's not in the Bill of Rights, then that doesn't mean we don't have that right. Uh, when the 10th Amendment explicitly says that all powers not delegated to the federal government belong to the states, and if not to the states, then to the people themselves. So I, I would, I mean, I would argue that the COVID regime has completely obliterated most of the Bill of Rights. And um, not a lot of people know this either, is that the Bill of Rights was not initially, did not initially apply to the states. The Bill of Rights initially only applied to the federal government. And it wasn't until the Supreme Court picked one by one through the 14th Amendment, they tried, they, um, they used the window of the 14th Amendment to pigeonhole the Bill of Rights and apply them one by one to the states. So this is a very long-winded way of saying that I think the COVID regime fundamentally has completely destroyed um, freedom of association and has also destroyed you know, our right to gather and peacefully petition the government for a redress of grievances. Um, it's destroyed our freedom of religion if we're not allowed to worship, uh, even during, you know, specifically during these periods of lockdown. 
Uh, but the Fourth Amendment, too, has kind of been obliterated. And, it, you know, the protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. I mean, you could go to unusual, um, cruel and unusual punishment is that being locked in your homes and being socially isolated is a form of torture that the CIA has used repeatedly. So uh, those are some of my thoughts on it. Thanks for indulging me a little bit. No, that's great. Um, I think I think you're right. I think a lot of people didn't understand some of the history surrounding the Bill of Rights and um, and the Fourteenth Amendment. That was the part of law school, part of constitutional law, that I found the most uh, intriguing and fascinating is how the just over time, case by case, amendment by amendment, the Supreme Court just went through the Bill of Rights and came up with these sometimes convoluted reasons why the the Bill of Rights should or these individual amendments in the Bill of Rights should apply to the states. So folks, if you're looking for something interesting to read in constitutional law, that's, that would be a good place to go. Yeah, It's very fascinating, I think. Yeah. Well, you have an article on Liberty Weekly talking about this. So you want to plug that? <laughs> yeah, I do happen to have an article on Liberty Weekly uh, talking about uh, different methods of interpreting the Constitution. Um, so yeah, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, so everyone go out there and take that, take a look at that. And, and I do have another article coming soon. I'm, I'm working on it. So Paul, did you have something you look like you were? Yeah. So Patrick, I think you just laid out a very strong case of what's just happened in the last 18 months and why, um, if you care about the bill of rights, of the constitution, we should all be concerned with what's happened. Have you met somebody who's come at you and said, no, you're missing the point and presented a counter argument? And, and I, and I don't just mean on Twitter, <laughs> I mean like, you know, someone you've spoken to. Well, it actually, it was on Facebook, but the, the, um, the position of the person I was arguing with is important because at, at the law firm that I used to practice at, it was one of the best plaintiffs attorney firms, like, sorry, it was one of the best personal injury firms in the state of Wisconsin on the plaintiff's side. And there was a senior attorney there who I got into a scrap with on Facebook after I had left the firm because I, I made this post about how <laughs> you might enjoy this. Um, if you, if you um, advocate forcibly injecting something into someone's body against their consent, then I think you should take a long look in the mirror and consider that maybe, just maybe, you're on the wrong side of history. Just consider it. And um, he he made some kind of comment about how, um, well, I think it's people who have this um, this ill-conceived view of personal liberty that are on the wrong side of history. And I like just that statement in of itself, I think, should have made him stare in the mirror a little longer. And, and I mentioned this issue of um, this doesn't exactly pertain to the Bill of Rights per se, but there's this very famous issue in medical malpractice called informed consent. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about this, but informed consent says that if a doctor does not fully inform you of all the risks of a given procedure, then he's actually committing a battery against you if he performs that procedure without informing you about it or obtaining your affirmative consent. And you can sue that doctor in tort for battery. And there, there's a seminal case called Canterbur Canterbury versus Spence. And I think this is a DC case. Um, where a doctor didn't inform a young law clerk about a procedure regarding his spine, and he ended up being paralyzed. Uh, I believe that's the facts of the case, but it established this uh, this idea, the modern conception of informed consent. So I threw that out because I know that he, I believe he had practiced medical malpractice cases, so he'd be very familiar with this uh, this jurisprudence. And he basically said, and this is the argument that they would make against the Bill of Rights. They would say, oh, well, that is completely not applicable because, see, we're in a public health emergency. And sometimes the rights of the individual have to be squashed in order to preserve the whole. Okay. So, so I, I, yeah, I want to I tease this out just a bit more because a couple of words kind of rang in my ear. First was emergency. Right, which which implies that we we've gone from peacetime to wartime. What happens in wartime? Right, we can suspend rights. We can suspend normal normal activities. Um, so there's there's that, and then uh, there's there's this concept of reasonable. Um, uh, what's the, what's the term I'm actually thinking? Of? But some kind of reasonable burden we can place on everyone because again, it's it's a public health emergency. So do how do you define those terms? At the, is there any legal term that would say we're in a, we're in an emergency we're at war 
which which I'm, I'm guessing there is because there's a declaration of war that has to be done in, in Congress, right? Um, and then the other side of what what is actually defined as a reasonable burden from a health policy perspective? I'm going to give the lawyer answer and I'm going to say it depends. Okay, well, oh, well it, but, it, yeah. go ahead, sorry. No, no, I, I, I'm already getting a little bit flustered because I feel like these are the discussions that have I, I haven't heard. I, I can understand someone having a difference of opinion, but to actually sit down and have a thoughtful discussion about what what it, what does it depend on? How do we know? Where are the public forums in which we're having these discussions? Um, how how is the public giving any kind of input into it? Doesn't feel like we've had any of that. Am I, maybe I'm wrong. Um, no, I think I think you're completely spot on. And I at some point between the NBA closing its season down. And two weeks to flatten the curve. The propaganda <laughs> kicked into overtime. Oh, I forgot the toilet paper meme. Um, at, at some point, the entire globe collectively lost their minds in some kind of a mass psychosis. And I don't know if it was the TVs that spurred it on um, or, or just the weight of some, something like the NBA canceling its season and then everybody canceling things. And everyone being concerned, oh, I don't want to kill grandma. You know, they're... We're just going to close down for two weeks. Everybody, we're going to get in this together and we're going to close down for two weeks. And at that point in time, I think the battle was won. And then all of these, all of, and this is what I think it comes down to is the governors declared a public health emergency. And um, with, with rare exception, I don't, did Christy Nome ever declare a public health emergency in, in North Dakota? I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I, I don't think she did. I know there were never any mandates. Um, in, was it North Dakota or South Dakota? Maybe it was South Dakota. Yeah. Well, uh, wherever, wherever, wherever Christy Nome's governor. Yes. But the one thing that happened is that over the last 40 or 50 years, the, the legislatures, the state legislatures in states all across the country have been slowly brick by brick building the control grid for medical martial law. And in the United, in the Wisconsin statutes, it's Wisconsin chapter 250 and 251 and 252 that delegates that the health the DHS is to be the lead organization in a public health emergency. And when the governor dictates the DHS is the lead agency, it grants them huge police powers. And the DHS is given more power through the DHS administrative code. And in Wisconsin, and I'm I'm sure it's similar in Colorado and other states, in Wisconsin, I believe that's 145, DHS code 145. And there's a few other ones that give public health authorities the ability to, um, in Wisconsin, forcibly vaccinate people and to quarantine them and, uh, you know, shut down places of public accommodation. So that's kind of the infrastructure we're facing. Hi, all This is Scott dropping in here to let you know about a great new product that Paul and I put together. It's a guide outlining how you can have more productive conversations and avoid time-wasting arguments. And the good news is that it's free. So all you have to do is go to mentallyunscripted.com and sign up for our email newsletter. That's mentallyunscripted.com to get your free guide on how to never argue again. So, so what's happened is, is even though we're, you could argue we're, we're decentralized because the states are now in this place of power, the governors have the, the ability to, to trigger the emergency. And then the interlocking with that when it's a health emergency, the power is transferred over to the health people. So that's, that answers, I guess, the first part. How do we know it's an emergency? Well, the, the governor answers it. But I would imagine most people would, would want to have a discussion about when, when we know it's a health emergency. So you know, questions of, we've heard during this entire pandemic, uh, the stats about ICU beds being full. Most people don't, you know, the, the next question should be, well, are, you know, is this the first time they've been full? What kind of capacity do we have during a non-pandemic? And then when you actually look at that data, you realize hospitals are running at 80% most of the time because of profitability, right? So the, the infrastructure is, and, and, and ha- it happens to be not even just in our country, but in other places like Australia, they have a very similar architecture. So you're, you're always there. So then you're asking yourself, well, if that's the metric, it's not going to take very much for us to be, to trigger a health emergency. Right. And there's another interesting thing that happens when people are put in a fear state is that they stop thinking with their prefrontal cortex, right? They stop using the portion of their brain that produces higher levels of thought. And this actually goes into, um, uh, what is this? Uh, evolutionary psychology is that when, when you're in the forest and a bear steps out in front of you, 
your fight or flight kicks in and you make split split second decisions and when you choose to run away you don't stop to observe the flowers and say oh it's such a wonderful day you know or something you know something like that or or um so yeah that that happens but there's another thing that i don't appreciate about our our governmental system is that when it's always reactionary it seems like we can't do anything and the courts can't do anything unless someone has standing to challenge a law. So it seems to me, and Scott, maybe you have an opinion on this, but it seems to me that there is a um, what are they a presumption of constitutionality when when an executive wants to do something or when the legislature wants to pass a law, it is, um, and that's because the legislature is deemed to be the will of the people, right? Um, there's a presumption that what they do is constitutional. So the governor can declare an emergency and then three months later, you know, he can do it again, but it's up to someone to challenge him in court and the court can't necessarily step in unless there's someone to like someone withstanding to allow them to do that. And, and so what the governor in Wisconsin did Evers is that he kept trying to roll the emergency over because the emergency period only lasts three months or something like that. And he just kept trying to roll it over and roll it over and renew the state of emergency. And so there was a case, um, Andrea Palm, In re Andrea Palm was the name of the case. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court struck that down. So, but, but it's always, it's, it's conditioned, it's couched in this whole idea of, oh no, if we don't declare an emergency, something irreparably bad is going to happen to the country. So we need that quick response and that quick response obviously has to come from government. And sorry, Scott, I cut you off there. Oh, no. Um, that was all a great point. And Paul and I have talked about it on the podcast before, but this um, this fallacy or this this bias, it's called illusion of control. And when when people don't know what to do, we have an inclination to want to just jump in and do something because we see action as being better than inaction. I think that really came into play here is instead of sitting back and waiting to see what the impact of the virus was really going to be. Everyone was in that panic mode. So they just started reacting before there was evidence. And then that reset the baseline, so to speak. And I think it goes into what you were saying here is when when we allow the governors or the legislatures to act and it takes three to six months before anything can work its way to the court, then that new action that the government has taken has now already sort of settled in as the new baseline. So then you get a lot of reaction to that saying, well, you know, why can't you just do whatever the government said? And it takes a lot of energy to push people back towards the starting point. So I think that's one of the things that we're we're seeing here. And one thing you mentioned about the TVs, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have heard this, but I heard that the Amish are calling COVID the TV disease or the TV virus or something like that. And they're basically just not panicking about this because they're not sitting in front of their, their TVs 24-7. They're not, not sitting in their homes, locked in their homes, watching TV all day long. They're outside in the sun, getting exercise, doing their thing. And of course, you know, they've had deaths in the community, but it's not been um, anything that is causing them to panic. So have you guys heard that same thing? Yeah, I have. You have? Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of Amish in my community. Is there? Okay. There's Mennonites too. And actually at at one of my talks the other day, I, I was talking to everybody after the thing was over and he was, he was just talking about how the Amish are watching this all very closely and that they, they are very concerned and they're talking about it. And they are wondering if basically the country is going to fall apart and they should be preparing for it. That's what he said. So, I mean, it's kind of hearsay, but. Yeah, well, they've probably taken the most rational response out of anyone, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and another thought that I had is Paul and I, we were looking at an article in Zero Hedge today talking about um, how the CDC has subtly changed the definition of a vaccine. And I wonder, do you think that that would come in to play in the informed consent arena if one day the definition is X and then all of a sudden the definition changes, but your doctor doesn't explain to you the difference? So I'm thinking, you know, a doctor says, well, I'm giving you this flu vaccine and you have in your mind what a vaccine is. And you say, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll take that. And you get it. And then all of a sudden this new treatment comes out that would have not been classified as a vaccine before, but now it is. And you as the patient don't understand the difference. 
do you, would that be an informed consent issue do you think oh definitely i think it would but there's this other issue and here's the lawyer response again is that it depends on how how your forum defines informed consent because one thing we ran into and i used to i used to help litigate medical malpractice cases at our firm and um one of the issues we ran into is that it's so hard in the state of wisconsin to prevail on on a medical malpractice issue because the physician's lobby has just completely captured all the statutory definitions and so the definition of informed consent used to be what a reasonably prudent patient would want to know about a procedure before consenting to it. Now the definition is what a reasonably prudent physician would tell a patient before uh, you know, a procedure was performed. So, so the standard, the duty of care rather, is being set by physicians and not by patients. So with that in mind, I would think that, oh, well, oh, the CDC and the AMA are the regulatory bodies who who uh you know govern physicians everywhere so i'm sure we'd bring in uh an expert to testify and say oh well you know the cdc defines informed consent as being whatever a doctor would inform their patient and the ama is telling doctors hey this is a safe and effective vaccine and there you go again with with definitions i mean what does effective mean right yeah we were talking about this with the masks. I mean, they say masks are effective at preventing the transmission of COVID, but what it, does that mean? It, effective mean they lowers the risk by 1% or 90%. And when you're talking about safe and effective, you still have to look at the, the cost or the downside of the vaccine. And you have to do that cost benefit analysis. And I think that's one area where we're just falling apart here is we're not looking, we're only looking at the benefit and we can't get even get a solid definition of what the benefit is. Uh, much less see anybody compare the costs and the benefits together. Anyone that's been to business school, and I'm sure in a lot of other disciplines as well, I mean, cost-benefit analysis is the one of the first most fundamental things you do when you're making a decision is, you know, what am I going to get out of this? What's it going to cost me? And is it worth it? And I don't see a lot of that happening. And it's gotten to the point where if you even bring it up, you're being called an anti-vaxxer, conspiracy theorist, or whatever. We're at a point in our country that I never thought I would see during my lifetime. I know it's it's pretty unsettling. How many kids do you think died of COVID in the state of Wisconsin since this happened? Oh, I'm guessing, what, one or two? Three. Three, okay. Last yeah. time I looked. So, yeah. Sorry, Paul, I think you were going to say something. Well, well I, what... What really has struck me as profoundly sad and, and terrifying, if, if I really just, when I take a step back, is the chilling effect that we're seeing that happened just what it feels like uh, instantly. And, and, and what it makes me also then start to question, well, how long has this been in place, right? Uh, we've seen in the last, at least I've been aware since the um, last three or four years of odd behavior that little signals I started to see uh, where there were professors at universities who were speaking about a topic and they were being deplatformed, you know, in the, the the cancel language. And then you had complaints from professors and departments saying, I'm being, I'm being asked to sign an oath of some kind, a um, positive oath that claim that I will be this kind of person. So I uh, forgot the, the term that they use for it, but there were all of these small measures that were being made to show that you were loyal to a certain set of ideas. And, and then at the same time, I'm seeing this institutions being captured in different ways by various actors. And, you know, the biggest one that comes to mind, something of interest to me is sort of the, the outgrowth of China and the CCP, uh, really not the Chinese people. I always make a very clear distinction there because the CCP has very different aims than I think the people. But you see them, how they've captured uh, institutions. And during this pandemic at the very beginning, we see how they've captured the WHO and the all of the smaller apparatus, apparatus, whatever the term is, right? Where, you know, we we can't have certain discussions about this this origins of this virus. We can't ask certain questions, and then you're you're going. You, you know why the CCP doesn't want to talk about COVID and its origins because that is their that is their default position, right? Anything that's going to appear to show weakness of the CCP. We know that that's just the default. But then it's so bizarre that all of a sudden, everywhere, instantly, we're seeing the same discussion from all parties, not just the United States, but every other country, every other health department, 
having a similar reaction. Well, you can't ask these types of questions. We're not going to have these types of conversations. Assuming a health policy is based on science, okay, rather than some kind of discussion about, it depends, what are the values? What are the measures that we're thinking about in terms of the economy versus versus public health? Do we even have the data on the public health? Uh, and you know, I was listening to a really interesting discussion between Vinay Prasad, uh, who's you know he's he's a doctor, focuses a lot on health policy, and he he spoke to a uh, bioethicist about about COVID, and they talked about the chilling effect, the fact that a lot of scientists didn't want to bring up questions about the data. You know, and one of them is is the is the child, you know, the children issue, right? Should we be vaccinating children? You know, I think the the biased person's gonna say no way in hell, right? They're gonna say, no, 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 I don't wanna do any of this. I think that's that's one way to go about it. A different way would say, okay, we need to vaccinate all kids clearly because of COVID. And then the middle of the road says something like, Okay, let's ask the question, what kind of harm exists to children from from getting COVID? Uh what and then, you know, what kind of data do we have about how they spread it? What kind of information do we have about what happens if, they, if they're if they in a school versus a playground? And what these guys pointed out in this discussion, and we can share it in the show notes, was that we've had ample opportunity to study all of, to, to gather all this data and study it. And there's been zero desire to do so. At the mask level, at the questions about does COVID spread in hospitals level, uh, do we need everyone to be vaccinated? There, I mean, which which are great questions. I mean, I, I I'm... You know, of the opinion as I'm hearing this, thinking, you know, if if we had information, if we if we a have the opportunity to study and then can get good information that says, you know, this this study, which you know, people can look at multiple multiple people that are um, you know savvy when it comes to statistical analysis and designing studies, randomized trials, have looked at it and said, you know what, I may not like the results, but this is real. Then we've got something we can work with. But there's been no desire to do that. None. At every single level, this chilling effect is massive. And now we, we I feel like I see it when it's, it's being called as, as Scott says, well, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist for asking these questions. Okay. But then what is the conspiracy when the authorities are captured by this chilling effect that they're not asking the questions that they know that they would always ask in the past? Um, and you know, it's a, it's a bit of a rant and I'm not sure I even have a question, but it's, it's something that's very haunting to me that, like you said, we have three children that died in Wisconsin and yes, that's very sad. How many children died the previous year of all the other ailments that, that attack children, right? Um, that are also very sad and tragic. And should we be masking the kids, forcing the kids to have a vaccine when they, they thrive, they vote fortunately. This is we're blessed. COVID doesn't attack children the way it does old people. You know, it, it just it, it feels like I, I'm not sure if this would come out in court if we're talking about the vaccine mandates and if the Supreme Court was asking about is it, like what kind of reasonable assessment have you done about whether these mandates actually um, address the virus and what kind of harm we're actually looking at from the virus beyond all the propaganda? I mean, I'm I'm assuming those questions get brought up in court at some point. Yeah, I, th- I think they would have to. And I know that there's organizations like America's Frontline Doctors who are filing lawsuits all across the country. We don't hear a lot about them, and I don't know how much faith I would put in the courts. I'm I'm so pessimistic on actual traditional solutions to this. That was kind of the, the topic of my last speech that I gave. Um, I don't have any faith in the legislature or the courts to ultimately defend us against this with rare exception in Wisconsin with what they've been able to do. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to comment, though, is that um, I don't want to get sidetracked on this, but when it comes to China specifically, I, I wanted to just give my piece about how right now there's a concerted effort to stoke a Cold War with China and that the, the Biden administration and the entire military-industrial complex is so much pushing this great power competition, this Cold War narrative with China that I, I want to be very careful about exactly what we call China out for, even though China is a very, um, you know, the, the, it's a communist state, you know. <laughs> so, um, but there's also this whole thing about the Wuhan lab and how the lab leak theory at first was a conspiracy. But then all of a sudden, Jon Stewart goes on that show with that other guy. And I don't, what's his name? Um, comedian, yeah, yeah, used Jimmy to be a comedian Kimmel, guy. Right? <laughs> it Jimmy Kimmel or somebody else? Uh, it was Colbert. Col, okay, well, he make yeah, it was he makes that joke about like the Hershey's chocolate factory. There's a there's an outbreak of chocolatey goodness in Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's so, a great place, by the way, for chocolate. Yeah, I've been there actually. <laughs> so, um, but you know, on the other hand, um, all of a sudden it becomes okay to talk about it. And there was a weird thing that happened where one minute it was okay or it wasn't okay. And another minute it was, and then all this, the things that are coming about out about the NIH funding gain of function research, but you, you are onto something about, um, when it comes to the censoring of speech specifically. And it's so interesting how the corporate press in the United States and all the thought and opinion molders say, oh, China bad. China's so bad. They're just evil. And they do all these things like social credit scores and all these things. But wouldn't it be nice if we could do those things here? <laughs> and and you could get into, you know, all, all of the, the U.S. capital that's invested in China and, and all these different things. But um, yeah, so there is a chilling effect. And I don't know exactly. I, I think it just comes from the capture of these institutions and the pervasiveness that companies like Pfizer and, and Johnson and Johnson have in the industry. This this in many ways is the culmination of a corporate medicine. It's it's like a corporate fascist state. It's just incredible to witness, really. It's I don't even I'm just blown away every day by this. Well and Paul, was it you that was telling me that Pfizer is the most held stock in Congress? Maybe yeah, that was I someone think, else. But. Well, I, I thought it was top five. Oh, is it? Okay. Right. Well, yeah, which I mean, on what is Moderna number? Moderna, yeah, yeah, Merck and M- Pfizer. Moderna is going to be number four. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that right there, anybody could ask the, the obvious question. Why does anybody in Congress get to decide which stocks they own during their time in Congress? Period. Right. Right. I mean, it's. It's it's a great example of why you know good things don't happen and people get frustrated with the laws. It's like the most obvious thing is that they shouldn't be allowed to have any say at all. Anybody anywhere close. Having worked at a public accounting firm, we had, we were more restricted on what we could invest in, right? And I wasn't even doing accounting. I was doing the the the, the consulting, and I was constantly being told. I mean, I was gonna. I could have penalties assessed, right? I could lose my job if I was if I was uh, investing in companies. Um, I mean, it's it's a double standard that that is beyond hypocrisy. But you know, there there you have it. Well, it's incredible. It's like the mask wearing too. It's it's um, okay. We're done taking the pictures. You can take your masks off now. I mean, there's so many examples of that. I think the the most recent climate conference was one of them. Yeah, <laughs> was was that the one where they caught Biden sleeping? I, I think, think it was. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, so I want to go to this next topic, and this is another thing that has always fascinated me about constitutional law. And I, I know you're not the expert on it. So folks, um, go check out the 10th Amendment Center um, for a lot of good information on this. But the idea of nullification, um, can you explain that real quick? And are you looking at possibly trying at possibly using that in your um, resistance to any mandates? I, I'd really like to. I'm, But I'm coming into this thing where, you know, I have two kids and a full-time job and a wife who very much likes to see me. And, um, you know, I, I'd like to, the thing is, is that it's very complicated and, and Michael Bolden has illustrated this pretty well is that in order for it to really mean anything at all, it has to be very precisely worded and it has to be precisely worded based on, you know, the jurisdiction that you're passing the law in or the ordinance or, and it has to be, in my understanding, a law. It can't just be something that's a decree that's of no effect. Um, so the history of nullification is another long Patrick McFarlane story. But um, suffice to say that nullification was really birthed shortly after the Constitution was ratified, when John Adams was president, the French Revolution was occurring, and the Anti-Federalists, which consisted of uh, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, um, they were more friendly to France and the Federalists who were in power with the John Adams administration were partial to Britain so soon after the uh, the revolution. And at that point in time, John Adams was actually terrified that Thomas Jefferson was going to like stage a coup as vice president and have French ships landing on the east coast of the United States. So they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were aimed at basically disenfranchising a lot of uh Democrat Jeffersonian Democratic Republican politicians and criti- and uh, making speech illegal that uh, favored France or criticized John Adams and his administration. So this passed and it was blatantly unconstitutional. And so Thomas Jefferson and James Madison 
conspired in secret to draft the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. And they got them passed in Kentucky and Virginia. Uh, Jefferson, they ghost wrote them and no one actually knew that they had penned these resolutions until like 1820s or something like that. And they got them passed in Kentucky and Virginia. And it basically outlined the compact theory of the constitution that the states were independent entities, political entities that came together to form the federal government. And that as doing that, they had the power to declare whether a law violated that compact. And so, in fact, James uh, Thomas Jefferson saw nullification as the moderate remedy for a law that was offensive to repugnant or offensive to the Constitution. And he was he basically said that states are in boot in duty in booty. They're in duty bound to declare a law unconstitutional if it is unconstitutional and refuse to enforce it. So so that idea unequivocally, you have the author of the Declaration of Independence and the author of the Constitution itself writing these resolutions saying that the states have the ability to declare laws unconstitutional. And the whole thing is kind of rendered moot because Thomas Jefferson ends up winning in the what the revolution of 1804 they called it or something and uh, he becomes the new president and it becomes kind of moot because the the sedition act expires from its sunset clause and uh, it's brought up again during the war of 1812 i i think they called that mr madison's war uh because the the james madison came into power and then he started a war with great britain and then all the states that said that the kentucky and virginia resolutions were bunk all of a sudden turned into uh, students of nullification and wanted to nullify and secede at the Hartford Convention. Um, so it and, and throughout the years, nullification has been used on so many issues. And Wisconsin became famous for nullifying the Fugitive Slave Act and refusing to enforce that. And and I think that's our state's proudest moment. But I, I know that you wanted to bring this up, Scott. Do counties have the ability to nullify state law? That's a great question. And I think that you know, according to state constitutions themselves, I don't think so, which is unfortunate. But I mean, that's if you believe in in that, if you believe in the state constitution, because the states have police powers and the states created the county governments, basically. But it, so so it doesn't necessarily follow um, this whole compact theory that the counties of Wisconsin didn't come together to create the state of Wisconsin. Maybe they did. I don't know. But if a state can declare federal law unconstitutional, why can't a county do declare a state law unconstitutional? And if a county can declare a state law unconstitutional, then why can't a township declare a county law unconstitutional? And if a town, so you you see right. how yeah. The yeah, yeah. So why can't I declare a law unconstitutional? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, here in here in my little sovereign kingdom of Scotopia that I like to call it. <laughs> yes. Now, would it still be nullification if a state? just refused to enforce a federal law. Um, they just said, no, we're not doing that here. We're not going to assist you in any way. Um, yeah, I believe so. So that would still be nullification. Okay. With, nullification without, in practice? Yeah, de facto, I think. Yeah, yeah de facto. Without like the declaration or something. Right, right. So, so, I, yeah, so I have a question about this. It's uh, I'm, not, I haven't, I'm not familiar with the term, but I, I'm thinking of something like... Um, our, our border security, which, which is coming up, uh, oh, frequently. but well, yeah. So yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, during the previous administration, you had California saying, well, we're not going to work with certain departments. Um, and you know, the, there's, there's collaboration there. And then you have the federal government, which has certain responsibilities with the border, but they're not necessarily fulfilling them. And then you have state government. So it, it maybe that's a bad example, actually, as I'm, as I'm talking through it, I don't know. Maybe, are there, I guess, are there modern examples of laws that um, are are nullified? Are states doing this today? In fact, oh, for sure. Um, so the two biggest, ex- well, the three bi- biggest examples: uh, federal federal cannabis prohibition has been basically eviscerated by the states because I think cannabis is still a Schedule Two or is it Schedule One under the the what is it the it's uh, the DEA uh, schedules. The DEA schedule. Yeah, yeah, um, and I believe it's a Schedule One, which I think cocaine is actually a Schedule Two. Um, so <laughs> if that tells you, <laughs> that gives you any insight into how crazy that is. It's nuts, but yeah. So states have been nullifying federal law by by making cannabis legal, and the DEA essentially 
every federal agency really relies on the states to carry out their policy because federal agencies don't have the manpower or the funding to actually do it. So they rely on the states to enforce policy. But other other uh, places that have been doing it or issues have been the Second Amendment issues, Second Amendment sanctuary. Um, and I think states have done this with with some policy nullifying federal policy. Uh, the other thing is the example that you gave is is immigration policy and places in in California declaring ice sanctuaries. Mm. Okay, so so I mean we're saying this a lot. This isn't a um, isn't something that happened 150 years ago. Be brand new. It's it's really and and I guess we're already seeing some of those inklings, right? With states basically saying regardless of what the federal government tells us about mandates for COVID, we're not going to apply it. It's been beautiful. And I, I mean, if, if you are someone who actually enjoys um, the federal union, the United States, you could even make a case that this is the greatest thing for keeping the union together because this is a way to blow off all of the steam that yoking, yoking every, everyone in the United States under the same policy is, is asinine. People are different in Florida and Alaska. Why should, why should there be one rule that applies to all those people? And federalism, well, nullification and federalism actually allows people in different areas to have different, to live under different policies. And I think it's the yoking people together that makes them angry and hate each other. So by allowing nullification, like Thomas Jefferson says, is actually, you know, amenable to the federal union. Although I hate the federal union, but <laughs> <laughs> the honest take, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, and the the concept of nullification, I mean, it actually does push down to more of the personal level because there's the concept of jury nullification uh, where a lot of people don't know this, but juries don't necessarily have to follow the law. Um, they can rule whichever way they want to. Now, I, I know the rules around that are different depending on what state and what city you're in. Um, but as a general rule, um, you know, you can, if you're on a jury, you can define to find a defendant guilty, even though all the evidence presented points to them, or you could find a a defendant not guilty, I should say, even though all the evidence points to them being guilty. Um, so this concept of nullification isn't just with uh, it, it isn't just with governments, but as at a, on a on a personal level, or on an individual level, you can participate in that as well. Um, so definitely um, something and check out uh, the Tenth Amendment Center. I think it's the is it the Tenth Amendment Center dot com. I think. Um, I'll look that for up. Nullification. Yeah, for and nullification. Fully, if you Google fully informed juries for jury nullification. For jury, okay. Yeah, we'll put those links in the show notes. Um, so, Paul, Paul touched on this a little bit. Um, so you've undoubtedly, you've said that you've you've met a lot of people who disagree with you, a lot of people who are willing to to tell you, uh, give you a thousand reasons why you're wrong. So, just generally, and so the the idea behind mentally unscripted when Paul and I put this together is that we were just seeing a breakdown in the um, the civility of our discourse and the depth of our discourse. So we wanted to put together a podcast to help people see that there are more than one side to every issue. That was probably the best lesson that I took away from law school is I don't know how many times I read a case and thought, yeah, this is a slam dunk this way. And then I read the other side's argument and I start to think, oh no, wait a minute, there's this, there's this whole other side of the story that I didn't know. And so we want to bring that to people. So when you hear people who disagree with you, how do you approach dealing with them? Um, do you Do you argue with them? Do you try to reason with them? I mean, what's your strategy? Well, I'm not the greatest at at convincing people of our cause, which I think is is funny because, you know, I have a podcast all about it, but my podcast is for like-minded people. It's not necessarily based on convincing or um what I what worked with me and might not work with everyone is that my first co-host Jerry, we were roommates in college. And he saw that I was a fledgling libertarian that liked Ron Paul, but I just hadn't quite really made it there. And he was very patient with me and he kept asking questions. And this is kind of the Larkin Rose candles in the dark method where you ask questions that are, um, you're not going to, you're not going to convince someone of your position on the spot. Very rarely will you do that. But when you're talking to someone who doesn't share our beliefs, your goal is to tie them in logical pretzel knots that will put them in a state of cognitive dissonance. 
which is where they're holding two conflicting views in their mind. And the goal is, is that maybe tonight, maybe in a week, maybe in a month, maybe years from now, they will try to work away at that pretzel knot in their mind. And they'll do it at different times, maybe when they're up at night or maybe it'll pop up when they're driving to work or something like that. And and that's kind of what worked at me. He asked me questions about like, okay, well, how how does the theory of popular sovereignty work if I can't delegate rights that I don't have? If I can't delegate a right that I don't personally possess, how could the people give that right to the government? If I don't have the right to pull someone over for having a busted taillight, then how could I give that right to the government? And it was things like that 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 really kind of worked on me. So when I talk to people, I try to ask questions about what their beliefs are. And and I think that if you ask the right questions, it makes them think. And that's all I want to do. Yeah, that's that's perfect. And that seems to be a theme that's coming up with a lot of our guests. They, they follow that same strategy where they try to ask questions and um, get to understand um, the other person's viewpoint better and then ask questions that are going to make them think. So that's, that's great. Uh, Paul, you look like you had something. Well, I was going to say, I've been running around with this thought in my head about how many times good conversations or perhaps even great conversations are derailed because of assumptions one party is making about the other and oftentimes about the belief system that someone else has or about the principles that they hold. So I'm thinking about, you know, is there a way in which you can ask questions that gets the other party to say, listen, what is it that you think I actually believe, right? Um, and, And then, you know, why do you think I believe that? Um, and have it, you have them explain it to, to you, right. And, and do the opposite and running through scenarios in my head of, you know, I'm, I'm going to defend why we should absolutely mandate everybody and everyone's okay with it. And I want you to do the opposite. I want you to explain to me why a mandate will never be justified. And, and going through that exercise, maybe there's a way to find some of those common bonds of saying, okay, I didn't realize this, or I, I misunderstood you there. How much how how much noise we could just get out of the, the room because you you can't expect at least I don't I think I think we you know Scott and I talk a lot about the Jonathan Haidt sort of uh, moral foundations theory about how what our what our foundations are about um, the six different ways in which we think about morality and how that imparts or, or informs how we think about these issues and am I going to change someone's morality you know if I asked that question before I talked about any of these issues I would I would um, nine times out of ten I'd say I, I I don't think so. I mean, why, why would I think I could change someone's morality? Well, then why do you think you're going to change their mind here? Oh, okay. Well then, all right. But maybe I can, at least they can explain where my morality is coming from or, you know, my reasoning is coming from, but I, I love the idea of asking questions. I wish, I, I wish I could ask better questions, right? Maybe that's, that's the, that's the next set of questions we'll ask is, you know, what are those questions? Not just to win someone over, but to, I mean, ultimately are, are we, if we all just thought a lot more, you know, maybe that's it. We need we need a critical mass of people constantly thinking about these ideas, even if they're at opposite ends, but not being tied down to you know to ideology um, without the the thinking apparatus that questions how do you apply it? What's the practical implications? Um, and maybe at some point you 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 know someone's a radical, but you're also having thought through the other implications a little bit more. Um, anyway, so those are some thoughts I have when we when we're thinking about questions. No, I think that's great, and one in a lot of ways what you're proposing is actually kind of easy because I've found that most people have not thought very much about what their foundational principles are. And when they do, they realize that they don't have any or that they haven't articulated them in a way that they understand. And so I, I think we're unique because I think in, in the internet and in our libertarian space, a lot of people we interact with, or if you're arguing with ANCOMs online or, or anarcho-syndicalists or other political flavors, they are generally people that who have kind of thought about these things. But in your daily life, if you actually have a deep conversation with someone, I think you'll find that people have not grappled with these concepts. And maybe you can plant a little mind virus there, a seed. I forget where I heard it, but uh, I heard someone say that most people are just walking around with their umbilical cords hanging out looking for a place to plug it in. <laughs> what a, what an image. Yeah, I mean so I mean basically people are just looking for something that sounds good so they can jump in and I'm not trying to use the term derogatorily here but be a useful idiot. They just want to find a place where they feel good and can just pick up on the talking points without having to think a whole lot about the the actual moral foundation 
or the underlying principles to the position. Um, so we're we're at an hour ten. Um, how much how much more time do you have? Do you need to get going? Well, you got one one thing that I wanted to uh, make sure that I address too. Was okay, you had what did I learn in the last year? Yep, <laughs> <laughs> yep, nothing. I learned nothing. Yeah, so it, it, I guess it would should actually be the last eighteen months or so at this point. We should probably update that question, Paul. <laughs> but yeah, probably should. Yeah. yeah well, so, so what made me a better thinker, and that ties into exactly what we're talking about, is I stud I started to actually kind of study foreign policy. And the one thing about that, I think it's the most challenging, even for people like us, aside from getting into high level economics, one of the most challenging topics is foreign policy, because it really makes you understand, as Scott said, the shades of gray and nuance and, and these different things that I think as as humans, we love stories and we love grand narratives and we love things that we can hook our umbilical cords up into and follow. But when you study foreign policy, I think you start to realize that the world is a lot less, I don't know if cogent maybe is the best word. It's, it's, not, it's not as monolithic as things would seem. And I think that in the past, I've fallen more for hatching onto a narrative and especially maybe I still do believe in some things that would be deemed conspiracy theory, but having studied foreign policy, you you really learn the interlockings of how the world works. And I've realized that there's so much that I don't know, and I think that's a good place to be. For anybody who wants to really start going down the rabbit hole on foreign policy, check out the Libertarian Institute and the Scott Horton show. Um, his podcast is he just has some people on there that will blow your mind and he's a libertarian, but he doesn't have only libertarians on there. He's got progressives and conservatives on there and hearing some of the conversations that they have and hearing about what's really going on in the middle East or with China or anything is, is very enlightening. And it'll help you realize that most of the world is different from the U S you know, than in, so we tend to get like, like you said, that monolithic thinking where everybody is the same as us. We want something a certain way. So every other country needs to have it that way too. And that's just not the case. Um, so getting away from the mainstream media and starting to listen to some of the more independent media or, you know, God forbid, listen to people who are actually in those countries living through the situation. Um, I know um, Nasser Arabi from Yemen is a great example. He's a reporter who lives in uh, Sanaa, I think, right? And hearing his reports from on the ground in Yemen is is pretty enlightening. Scott Horton definitely gets some good, very primary sources there. And I, I got to shout out my uh, my pal Kyle Anzalone as well. And Will Porter is his co-host to Conflicts of Interest. And uh, Joanne Leone of Around the Empire. That's my cadre, Scott and Kyle and Joanne and Will too. So. But but they know they know so much more than I do. I like to dip my toe in the water and explore topics. Uh, but I just I wish I had, you know, 30 or 40 hours in the day because I have no time. It's so <laughs> yeah. time consuming. It's so time consuming. And we have those pesky jobs and things we have to do, too. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so, yeah. Do you have a, a minute to do this last one? Yeah. Yeah. Um, last question we'd like to ask is just uh, if you woke up tomorrow in a brand new world, what what would that world look like? I, it would either look like Hoppy and Covenant Communities in like a libertarian land or if we're if we're thinking i guess even more utopianly uh probably a world without war because war is literally the worst thing ever i mean it's people killing each other for no no reason it's pure economic destruction there's no reason why it should exist it will always exist um but it's the word i think a lot less of it will exist without the state so i guess that's a that's a short answer yeah, and we could talk a long time about uh, fiat money standards and federal reserve central banks, just to keep it general, and uh, how they are able to feed the war machine and just keep uh, 20-year boondoggles going. Um, but we, we maybe we'll have to talk about that on another episode. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. sounds great. Sounds like an uplifting episode, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed this conversation, though. I really did. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, it was great. Um, thanks Our for coming pleasure. on. We really appreciate it. All right, folks. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Mentally Unscripted. Uh, we'll catch you next week, I guess, if you know Paul and I don't decide to kill each other. <laughs> Until next time. Cheers. Thanks, guys.